Ron and Anian. I want to talk to you first about talking more effectively to your mechanic, because I think that's a problem for a great many of you. The Car Doctor. Gee, you've kind of got some headaches here. What do you got? An 07 Impala, an 05 Sierra, and an 08 Silverado, and you've got a big question. Is it, why'd you buy American? No, I'm only kidding. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, The Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines at 855-560-9900. Ron and the car doctor at your service as we continue the march across this country of ours and around the world, I guess, with the power of the Internet now to fix all the broken cars. 855-560-9900, the car doctor's 24-7 phone number. Give us a call. Leave a message. If we're not here, we've got it arranged so that you can leave a message, and our producer, Tom Ray, will call you back and get you in the lineup for the next live show. As uh, we, like I said, try to get you up here on radio to talk to you about your car problem and solve it for you. Cardoctorshow.com is the website, podcasting there. Also at TuneIn, iHeart, iTunes, all the good places, all the places you know you've been there. And uh, we appreciate you taking the podcast. If you're not a regular listener during live show hours, we understand. You know, We know you're busy. We know you've got a lot going on in your life. And we're grateful for you to consider taking us with you for whatever amount of time you spend with us each and every week. And please click subscribe, if you can, on your podcast page to uh, automatically have us appear because that tallies up on our numbers and um, it helps our business. And that's what this is about. To a degree, it is a business. And, um, you know, that's the money side of the big game that uh, in order to be here, we've got to account for it. So... Speaking of being here, um, there's no other way to really do this. Um, It's become a time-honored tradition here on The Car Doctor each and every Memorial Day. And, um, you know, from a personal side, the next gentleman that we're going to have on for a conversation, he has been my uncle. Well, he's been my uncle for all 61 years that I'm here on the planet. And um, he's just been a great uncle and a great inspiration. And I've got to say he's more of an inspiration. Uh, You know, the older I get, the more I realize what he and his generation like him and those that have gone before him have accomplished and uh, given us. And uh, as they say, freedom isn't free. And uh, listening to him, you'll understand why. As we step out from being the car doctor talking about fixing cars, and we talk about Memorial Day and all that that entails. Let's welcome aboard First Lieutenant Stephen Ananian, 339th Fighter Group, Falmere, England. Uncle Steve, how are you today? God love you. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. I'm really doing well and uh, glad to be here with you talking about, once again, Memorial Day and what it's all about. Maybe I thought we'd coax a little a couple of stories out of you, as I'm sure you have them. Um, you know, Memorial Day, Uncle Steve, I, I think it's important. You know, this is the weekend everybody around goes around saying, hey, have a happy Memorial Day. That's really not correct, is it? No, no. It's a, it's a day we uh, contemplate all our bodies and all the things that uh, we went through. But uh, you said something that <laughs> made me chuckle. And um, I don't know if you know it, but uh, I have great-grandchildren now. 
And my great-grandchildren asked me, Grandpa, what did you do during the war? And I used to tell them, well, I climb into my Rolls Royce about 5 o'clock in the morning, fly over Germany and chase a bunch of Germs in their full swaggers. But that's, in effect, what it was. Well, you know, as they get older, Uncle Steve, the older they get, the smarter you will become. You know, because that's that's really how it works, because I think for your great-grandchildren at their age, they, they it, it's hard to comprehend. I mean, listen, I'm 61. It's hard for me to comprehend what your generation and what all the generations that march off to war do, uh, you know, to put it all on the line. And, oh, well, you know, you just said it. Uh, it's hard for anybody, no matter whether they were in a war or not, unless you... You don't know what it's like unless you fly over a field and shoot. You have the flak coming up at you. Now, this isn't a picture. This is a bunch of uh, steel being flowed, thrown up here from the ground. And, boy, when you fly over that, everything in your body puckers up, you know. You, right. Even the hair follicles on your arms collapse because you don't want to get hit. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a different feeling, and uh, uh, I'm very fortunate. You know, we, we still uh, have our reunions. Uh, in fact, I think we're the only World War II outfit that still uh, meets every year, and we have our reunions. Uh, this year we'll be in uh, 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 Milwaukee, and uh, uh, we'll have an air show. We would have a couple of P-51s, a couple of PT-17s, and uh, the fellows come up and do aerobatics. Last year, I flew in a backseat of a P-51 again, which was a thrill. Yeah, what was that? What was that like to be back in a P-51? Oh, that, that, that was at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. They invited me down there to have a, a World War II air show. Every year, about in September or October, and I was invited down there, and uh, they uh, invited me to sit in the back seat of a P-51, and uh, we did a couple of slow rolls, and yeah. that was nice, yeah. hanging by your seat. Yeah. And, and I'm sure oh. you wanted to grab the stick. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, the only thing is they didn't have one. Right. One for me, I guess. Right. Right. I'm sure you wanted to. I remember a couple of years ago you were back up here in North Jersey down at uh, Teterboro Airport when they had the, you know, uh, B-17 there. Yes, and yes. Um, they realized, you know, you had flown and they took you up into the cockpit and you were explaining the cockpit to them. And it was a, it was it was a great conversational exchange about, you know, from from old to new, so to speak, about here's how this plane worked and here's what it did. And they listened very, very intently to each and every word as you dispensed well, it. You know, you were talking about the mechanics and, uh, you know, uh, airplanes when we were your age, uh, you know, World War Two. When we were uh, 20 years old, we all knew about cars, you know. Uh, when I flew in combat, uh, the three months before I went into combat, I flew full reconnaissance, and I flew practice every airplane you could imagine. 
every plane but the P-51. When I got into combat, I had one hour flying time in the P-51, and that's when I got hit uh, by anti-aircraft fire and had a bail out into the North Sea. So and I flew that airplane, which they say you can't fly more than five minutes without oil. Well, I flew it for 45, 45 minutes, losing oil away, and uh, my buddy, who was escorting me, he saw me violently rocking the wings, and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm lubricating the engine. I was trying to get the oil from the sump up on the uh, engine wall, side walls, so that, you know, and it worked. I mean, right. uh, yeah. So when you when you went on that first combat mission, you had one hour of flying time, and off you went. Yeah. And wow. Well, the result was we did survive because of my ability to handle the airplane, and uh, I was in the water for an hour and a half. Right. In the uh, freezing water. The week before, we lost one pilot. He was down in that water for six minutes, and he said to come to the uh uh, cold uh, temperatures. Well, but I was able to survive because when I got into the water, I just did nothing but exercise, moved my arms and legs, and kept going, and that's what kept me going. How did you have the forethought, Uncle Steve? I mean, my gosh, you're, you're 19, 20 years old. Your first combat mission, you've been shot down. You're in the English Channel, freezing cold. There's 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 high seas, right? What was it, 10-foot seas? They weren't going to send out yeah, any yeah, air sea yeah. rescue. And here you are hanging onto a donut like a mouse onto a life preserver, like a mouse hanging onto a donut. And, and you know, what, what was going through your mind at that moment? <laughs> I was playing. You never heard... A guy plays so hard in his life. Yeah. But uh, what the the other part of that story is, well, I was rescued by a air sea rescue flying boat. The the pilot saw what my situation was, and he knew I couldn't survive. And so, even though there was ten foot seas, he landed his airplane on that water. Came over, they pulled me. Up to the side of the plane, they couldn't be threw me into the airplane because I was so waterlogged. And then a minesweeper that was there in the area came over, and they took me aboard. And these guys, when they took off, they crashed the, the plane. Uh, the a pontoon came off, and they had to be rescued themselves. So what I'm saying is, you know, everybody was risking their lives. For each other, right? Without even thinking about it, because that's the situation we were in. We had yeah. to do that, and and this is this is what's wrong now. What we do is when we have a war, we don't resolve it. We have a ceasefire. Everybody says, "Okay, it's over," but it's not. Right. So what you're saying is, let's go finish it and get it over with. No, you have to go to the end. Yeah. My last vision I had of Berlin were smoke coming up from the rubble up to 25,000 feet. Flames were up to 5,000 feet. And the uh, Berlin was nothing but a sea of rubble. And the only thing that you could see was there was a little valley. And that was where the 
subway, the uh, the uh, under the linen had collapsed, and uh, you could see that, and and that was my vision that I still have to this day of Berlin. Of, of that's how the of that's how we've got to finish it. Let's finish it. Well, and get it what over happened with. Is yeah. when you had that kind of devastation when the war was over? Who was our who are our best friends now? The Germans, right? Because they wanted us to rebuild them. Well, because we went in. And after we defeated them, we helped their economy, and we uh, helped them to grow. Yep, yep. Uncle Steve, it's 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 you know, truer words are never spoken. We we enjoy you each and every year. I've got a minute left. What would you like to tell the listeners to, to remind them of what this weekend's about? Well, just remember one thing: freedom is not free. And someone made a sacrifice for us to be here today, and we should appreciate it. Yep. Absolutely. Uncle yep. Steve, God love you. Keep you safe. And uh, we, hope, we hope to talk to you again next year. Same it's time, same channel. You're what, 26 years? Yeah, uh, 26 years on radio. Yeah. Remember yeah, when I started? You. It just seems like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll have some stories of my own. Uncle Steve, I'll talk to you during the week, and you take good care of yourself. Thank you, everybody. Take care. You're welcome. Ron and Annie in the car, Doctor, 855-560-9900. We're coming back right after this. Hey, Ron and Annie in the car, Doctor, 855-560-9900. Thanks for sticking around and enjoying us with this, and joining with us this hour. And once again, thanks to Uncle Steve. You know, he's he's 95 now. I, I, you know, and he still got it, um, uh, you know, sharp as a tack. God love him. He, um, uh, you know, and I never heard him describe Berlin like that. So I have to talk to him more because I think there's things inside of him that time is bringing out. You know, he um, he's just 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 amazing. What a generation that was. And all our troops, not to minimize any of the efforts of any of them uh, from current to the to the to the, uh, you know, the oldest. Uh, God love them. Keep them safe. Let's get over to Dave in Maine. Some uh, comments and questions about yes. oil oil and oil conditioners. Hey, Dave, welcome to the car, doctor, sir. How can I help? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm calling to ask you about uh, Lucas oil conditioner and okay. ZMAC oil conditioner. Okay. Does it mix well with synthetic oils? Well, let me ask you this. Whose synthetic oil is it? might be something like mobile one okay my feeling is that i'll, I'll tell you I'll, I'll answer your question like this dave years ago we, when it was more conventional oil where we were using you know 530 1030 conventional mix we would put a bottle of stp good old-fashioned stp in that little blue bottle and, into probably each and every oil change i'm going back 10 15 years Going back that, quite a while. Yeah, and you know, then the industry started to really use more and more synthetic. Where now synthetic is really the oil of choice. It's we're, we 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 sell synthetic by by requirement now. Probably two thirds, if not more, during the course of the year. It's two thirds, one third instead of the other way around. the The issue is synthetic oils by themselves are so well engineered. All right that I tend to leave them alone. I don't put additives in a synthetic oil because the synthetic already has some form of an additive package in it. I'll speak from Penn's oil, all right? All oils start with a base stock, 
All right. And for the record, I think Pennzoil is a better oil than Mobile One because I think they start with a better base stock. I really do. All right. They're using a natural gas derivative, which is a cleaner base stock oil to start from. And because well, what about Royal Purple? Well, Royal Purple is a whole nother story. Tell me, tell me, you know, where Royal Purple is on engineering and development. And I think Royal Purple, in my mind, is more of a racing oil. I think that's always been their market as far as streetcars. Uh, if, yeah. if if Royal Purple was in such demand, in my mind, then why aren't they more predominant in the everyday car market, so to speak? And I'm not that saying I'm true. not I'm not saying it's a bad oil. I'm just you know, based on what I see. Sometimes when you go to the supermarket, you always buy if you don't know what you want to buy, what brand you always buy the brand that's being used the most. More people are using Penn's Oil than Mobile One and Royal Purple, from what I'm seeing, and I think there's a reason for that. Um, and my point is that the engineering that goes into these oils, such as Penn's oil, the synthetic and the way they come up with it and the, the, the engineering and the studies and the data that supports it, I don't believe you need to put an additive in on an everyday driving application. That being said, if your vehicle has a specific problem and you're thinking, well, this additive is going to cure that, that's a different conversation. And I've seen some of the things that Lucas has where they'll have seal restorers or stop smoke and you know now we're into a different conversation where we're not using the additive to help promote the life of the engine as much as to try and fix something that we don't want to take the engine apart for to fix does that make sense what i'm looking at is most you know i'm thinking the synthetic oil or the oil conditioners might cut down on the friction that's in the engine and stop and go driving Nah, you know what I'm talking about. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to matter because if it's if it's going to matter, I'll, I'll answer your question this way. All right. Uh, you're concerned about friction and wearing out the engines. Yes. It 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 still comes down to here. Well, I'll answer it like this: We pour synthetic at the shop all the time. We pour a house brand synthetic. We pour a Pennzoil synthetic, and we pour a few others. All right. Regardless of what we pour. Okay, and it depends on what we pour as far as what oil change interval we'll put somebody on. But we haven't lost an engine yet as a result of that synthetic. Usually the engine will outlast the car to the 250, 300,000 mile mark. I don't see where an additive, because you think so, will make that much of a difference. I talk to the oil manufacturer and get some specifics from them before you start making changes. Good luck to you, Dave. I appreciate the call. Ron and the car doctor. We're back right after this. Ron Anini, The Car Doctor, 855-560-9900, cardoctorshow.com for more information, and tunein.com. And by the way, where did I put that piece of paper? For all my brothers, I wanted to, I had a couple of questions people were writing in, talking about, yeah, coming up, it's this Wednesday. I had a couple of emails about this. They wanted more information. So if you're in New Jersey and you're looking for some Chrysler information, there's an all-new Chrysler training seminar coming up from the folks from ATG, Automotive Training Group. Uh, more information at automotivetraininggroup.com. But at the Hotel Woodbridge, 120, 120 Wood Ave in 
120 Wood Ave South on Island, New Jersey. There's a Chrysler training class. Two nights, uh, four and a half, five hours a night. All the latest Chrysler information if you're looking for drivability and uh, code clearing and code solving information. That's the place to be this Wednesday, the 31st and June 1st. Um, if you're in the New Jersey area, I will be there both nights taking the class myself and um, looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, it's what we got to go through, guys. It's part of the business. Let's get over to Dave in Wisconsin with a 2011 Ford F-150 and some problems there. Uh, how this engine's running. Dave, how can I help? No, first, thank you for taking my call, especially on a you know, holiday weekend. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. So what can I do for you? Um, it's a bit of a story here. I got a, about a 2011 Ford F-150 uh, EcoBoost 3.5 liter, December 15th. Um, had one owner, uh, but got it from a dealership that they're, they have the same name, but they're owned by two different people, and they played the, the middleman. Um, they brought the vehicle up for me to, you know, take it for a test drive and whatnot. Um, drove it. It had a little drivability issues. Um, they put in writing that they would take care of it. And then for the next two months, they had it longer than I did by far. Um, it it would it, it would it died out um, at you know, when he'd come up to the light, it would chug out and die. Um, then the idle would come up a bit. Um, it would end up with uh, going up a ramp. You'd end up with a, a terrible loss of power. Uh, you know, you could put the pedal to the floor, and you weren't getting anything more than 55 out of it, not 50 miles an hour. Um, it was an intermittent problem. Brought it back to them. Um, they dove into it for about 15 hours. Uh, couldn't figure anything out. Had me take it to a Ford dealership. Uh, they looked at it for about seven hours. Um, found a cracked spark plug and some wires. Uh, I know a little bit about vehicles. I told them that it's got to be more than that. Uh, they changed that. Uh, two days later, still same problem. Um, took it back to the original dealership. They said take it back to Ford. Um, they came up with uh, both wastegates on the turbo. The turbos were stuck open. So they went ahead and changed both turbos. Um, they've looked into throttle position sensor. Uh, I had, uh, they claimed a, a typical EcoBoost problem with the multiple cylinder misfire, yet it would throw a code and then sometimes you'd have it and it wouldn't throw a code. Um, they went through, they, they finally got through everything. It ran, Okay, this is an intermittent thing. Um, after the turbos, it ran good for a few days. I started having coming up to the light. It will drop down into the way low hundreds, just just right before it's gonna die out, um, and then come back up again. Which is, then it also has a hesitation when I go to start off, and it's when it's running good, no problems. When it's acting up, that's good luck. That's right? when all this. Yeah, right. And it's good luck. You know, it's the, the old, you know, you bring it in, it's going to run fine. Um, I had the, had the mechanic actually uh, tell the service guy, you know, well, tell him maybe he's not used to having a newer vehicle. And I tell you what, my my roommate has a one year newer. And while my truck was in the shop with them for so long, I went and test drove a bunch of these. And it's, there's no comparison to right. what I'm dealing with. Right. And, uh, I did 70,000 miles on when I got it. Um, they did uh, the, whatever, the, so to say, flash the computer because they said, you know, it learned the 
previous driver. He was a retired guy. I don't ever got on it much and whatnot. I I think you've got some serious problems with this truck, Dave. And I and I say that in all seriousness. I don't think this is. I don't think this doesn't sound like a crack spark plug. This doesn't sound like a relearn. This doesn't sound, you know. But let, let, it's like a turbo thing, right? <laughs> right. You know, it doesn't sound like it's just a turbo thing. There's, there's, there's more going on here than meets the eye. So I've got a couple of questions and, and, and you know, some observations. Was this vehicle? Do you think this vehicle was ever in an accident? No, no. But I know that Carfax aren't always, you know, telling the truth. You never know what people hide. But uh, no, I, I know some. I know a lot of people in the industry, and uh, had a really knowledgeable uh, lead body guy for a very reputable dealership around here look at it, and right. you know he seen he seen nothing. And I, you know, the, the gentleman before me, you know, he just retired guy. You know, he there was nothing there either. And where where I'm at right now is there. There's still. I mean, I appreciate what they're doing. They're certainly standing behind it. With labor and parts, right now they're at about $13,000 into this vehicle. And they're still standing behind it. What, I, what I'm currently having is is when you, when you start it up, it's more when it's cold, but the, it just the idle is not right. I mean, it, it jumps down, it jumps up, and it just it doesn't die now, but it is so close right. to stroking out. And they, they're still willing to stand behind it. But it's not throwing any codes, and it was very intermittent when it had all these problems that they have fixed with throwing codes. And I'm just a little hesitant about them saying they stand behind it. They put it in writing, stand behind it. But you know, how long before I end up with a code? How much time is going to pass before it does rear its ugly head? And right. okay, now we're you know now they see it, and now we're not willing to stand behind so, it because of all the time that passed. So you just walked into the emergency room you didn't feel good on tuesday you're you're feeling okay today but you're not quite right so i'm the doctor and i've got to know what's going on right same same kind of a scenario there's something up but i can't really put my finger on it because you're not you're just not right uh, i'm going to run a battery of tests and in the case of the car um i'm going to start to look at all critical grounds um, I'm going to make sure bad and I mean some of this might be redundant and some of this sounds real basic and simple but solving hard problems in order to solve hard problems I've got to eliminate the obvious I've got to eliminate what's good and if I eliminate all that's good eventually I'll find what's bad and and that's that's one way to approach something like this what what you're describing to me is in the back of my mind and not to be emotional about it but sounds like a vehicle with a bad ground frayed wires broken ground poor connection something along those lines so i'm going to start to look at some of the critical pieces of the wiring harness some of the main engine grounds i'm going to voltage drop everything and and just try and go through them. you know maybe i'll come back and say hey dave i know it's not this but i can take that off the list Okay. Second thing I want to do is I'd like to look at mode six. And we lean a lot on mode six. And what it is in English is mode six is the reference that the computer uses to know when it's broken. All right. You you ever think about what makes a check engine light come on? And you can say, well, the car is broken. But how does the car know it's broken? All right. It's, it's the same way that a desktop computer gives you the blue screen of death and it tells you that the checksum error is this or it's out of volatile memory or some such because it runs a self-test. Car computers, desktop computers, they're always running self-tests on their electronics. When they see a, a problem reach a threshold, bingo, and the check engine light turns on or in the case of the desktop computer, blue screen of death and the desk and the computer shuts off. In your case... 
I'd want to go into mode six, which any decent scan tool will have, and give me the ability to look at things like what's the misfire rate? Is it reporting any misfires? Is it reporting any issues in any areas of fuel trim? What's it losing here? All right. It's losing something to make the idle surge like that. Has has anybody thought about the possibility of a defective processor? That's the third thing on my mind. You know, whenever I get a vehicle that's haunted, I start thinking about computers because there's almost no way to test it um, ex- except for powers and grounds. And then maybe I'll create a problem. Has anybody tried to create a false code? You know, unplug the mass airflow sensor. The truck will die or the truck will run funny. Does the computer recognize that? If the computer can't recognize a condition that I created, guess what? I'm waiting around for a code to set from something that's broken in the first place. Yeah, that's you, know, you, you mentioned that when I was when they got, when I got it back and it was still idle and messed up. I actually took a couple wires off and I I didn't get a code to throw. And kind of interesting, right? It should yeah, it should it should have something right, and and that's a very you know it's a very intermittent thing there. When you when you talk about you know uh, the threshold, you know can uh, could it, I don't know what you know fully what thresholds are, probably low, whatever. If well, could this be doing something where it's just not quite hitting that threshold? Sure, absolutely, abs- absolutely. Here. So a misfire threshold. A misfire threshold might be 64,270. So the computer will record 64,269. It won't set a code. It gets to 70, bang, the light comes on. But it's got to go 64,269 misfires before it sets a fall. All right? So, you know, whatever the number is. Now... You know, and I can't prove this, and, you know, I don't want anybody to really think I'm being negative against car companies, but I often wonder, do they set thresholds higher on certain cars because that way they see less check engine lights, and we sell more cars because our cars never break. We never have check engine light issues. Think sure. about it, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I started to kind of got, you know, to the yeah, to the point to where it's it, – when. When the mechanic's telling me that maybe I'm just not used to it, and I go out and test drive a bunch of, it, you, know, nah, you got, none of them idle quite that way. It's just not right. You got <laughs> you you got the wrong mechanic. Listen, I got to go. The clock's going to take me. But do me a favor yep. and you know stay in touch with us. Let us know what they find. Ask them about Mode Six. I would take it to a Ford dealer and have them go through it piece by piece. If it's still under warranty, let them resolve it and get back to us and let us know what the end result is. And uh, if you get stuck again, we'll be glad to do what we can for you from our end. Hey. Five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. We're coming right back right after this. Don't go away. Dead man's curve. Hey, Ron and Annie in the car doctor. Eight five 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 eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. Hey, like that. I almost hit that mark. Is the show over yet? Whew, Ten minutes to go. Let's go over and talk to Ashley in North Carolina, ninety nine Chevy Suburban. Ashley, welcome to the car doctor. How can I help? Hey, thanks, Ron. Thanks You're for welcome. taking my call. Welcome, sir. What's going on? I got a 99 Suburban, uh, the classic, that I bought back in February. And ever since I've bought, ever since I've had it, every time I fill up with gas, I got a, I can smell it inside the cab. Okay. And it'll, and it goes away when it gets to about three quarters of a tank. All I right. have checked all my lines and, you know, the vents and everything, and everything seems to be okay. And, Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you could help me. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I would think you've got a leak somewhere. All right, obviously. Uh, this should be a metal gas tank, or is this plastic? It's metal. It's metal. So what makes you think that you... And, and, well, and here's the weird part. All right, I'm going to contradict myself. You would, okay. th- you would think that if it had a leaky gas tank, it would set an EVAP fault code. That's you know, correct. It would it would it would show a leak of twenty thousandths or less or whatever the number is going to be. But it, you would think it'd be setting a a four four two or four fifty six or something. Uh, but that being said, um, you know if you have access, if you got a buddy with a repair shop, maybe with a smoke machine, I'd love okay. I'd love to plug into the neck, go in through the top of the fuel tank neck, and smoke it. Does it does hmm. it does it continue to smoke? Does it does it does the ball drop? Does it continue to show flow? All right. And what I'm uh-huh. trying what I'm trying to do, and I would do that with half a tank of fuel or less. What I'm trying to do, so you don't have to drop the tank to look at the top of it, is eliminate good. All right. If okay. you, if you get the smoke to stop smoking or stop flowing, um, and you're smoking the tank and it's coming out, and you're gonna have to plug the vent line, then you know it's not the tank. Then let's focus on the canister. Do we have a canister problem? Did the person before you continually pack the tank? Did it? Did they? Did they shut off the tank? You know, when the pump clicked, did they round it off to the nearest dollar, and or did they try to squeeze another yeah. two dollars in it? And that that has now spilled over into the canister, and the canister is so saturated that it just can't uh-huh. it can't hold anymore. So then we get into the conversation: Do we pull the canister down? Listen, sometimes weighing the canister, get a new canister, weigh it, get an old canister, weigh it, see what the difference is. If it's extreme, maybe that canister's loaded. I've also I've also seen cases where we've got a, a problem with the vent. The vent isn't working correctly. Again, we should see a fault code, you would think, but just be mindful. Do we could we have a vent canister area related problem? Last thought, even though I don't think this is it. Just check the fuel pressure regulator. They're very common to fail 99 2000s that model year that series. But you would be telling me you smelled fuel all the time, not just after a fill-up. All right? So go do those things. I'm up against the clock this segment, Ashley. And if you need more, give me a call back, and we'll go from there. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's coming back right after this. Hey, we're into the home stretch here. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900, toll-free, 24-7, cardoctorshow.com. Get out there, get some podcasts, and uh, click subscribe at iTunes and iHeart. We appreciate it. Reading the want ads. You know what? Sometimes you're bored. You need a good laugh. You ever, not the want ads, but the uh, new car ads and used car ads. I found a 2012, listen to this, a 2012 Subaru Forester Limited. Moonroof leather with a VIN, with a you know, stock number. All-wheel drive auto. Four-cylinder boxer engine. I got to tell you, all Subarus are boxer engines. That's nothing to advertise. I don't understand why that's such a big deal. Electronic stability control, power windows, locks, mirrors, tilt. 96,192 miles. A 100,000-mile, five-year-old Subaru. You want to know what the asking price for this car is? $13,886. This is this, is this week's paper. We're asking fourteen grand for a five-year-old car with 100,000 miles on it. A, does that mean that it's more worthwhile to fix the 100,000-mile car you've got that needs three to $5,000 worth of work and continue to drive that because you know the history on it? Or B, are these guys just flat out out of their mind? On that note, then there's an article in the paper today, Off-Lease Cars Shift Market, Detroit, in 2014, 
Infiniti leased more than 28,000 Q50 sedans. Blah, 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 blah. Now they're talking about there's a glut of lease vehicles coming off lease in the marketplace. That means that there's more used cars for people to buy than they previously thought. But yet we're asking $14,000 for a car that, in my opinion, is overpriced and overvalued. I don't get it. Be careful when you go out there car shopping this weekend, folks. It's Memorial Day, and um, just uh, just be careful. Running into the car, doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.